The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today, I'm in conversation with one of our elders, Jeffrey Pickering. Born and raised in Barbados, he moved to the UK at 16 to pursue further education. He went on to become a nurse and a cardiac physiologist and shared his life with his partner Michael for 36 years until Michael's passing in 2011. Jeffrey spoke to me about his reverence for his mother, his first love, his career, his assiduous pursuit of culture and education, and the moment in 1974 he first laid eyes on Michael. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Jeffrey Pickering. start with your early life. Am I right that you, um, that you grew up in Barbados? Until the age of 16. And so tell me what your favorite memory is from childhood. Oh gosh, well, we lived about two or three minutes walk from the beach Mm. on the west coast. And that holds many, many memories for me because as soon as we came home from school in the evenings, we were on the beach. We spent weekends on the beach. We spent our long school holidays on the beach. But not only that, you know, the, the other games that we played as children, not only day games, but sometimes we played night games as well. Because if you have a very cloudless sky at the night and the moon was very bright, the kids would play night games sometimes. So those are all very wonderful memories. I have a childhood friend that goes back to as far as I can remember. And these are things that we still talk about, the wonderful times. I have a cousin who's just a few years younger than me. And we, we do talk and reminisce about all those early days. He now lives in New York. And we're quite often on the phone. But we talk and we reminisce about all the early days, the things we did. We talk about our school days. There were, oh, there are so many things we talk about. It's just simply, it was a wonderful life. And I must say, I would not have swapped those first 16 years for anything in this world. Mm-hmm. 
nothing whatsoever. <laughs> Not only that, but I had an absolutely wonderful extended family, you know, of two aunts and uncle and various cousins, male and female. And we all lived on the same road. So I had about, gosh, between 12 and 14 cousins. Wow. And I, I saw, I more or less saw them, all of them every day. Hmm. So it, 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 it was a wonderful life. It was like open house. We just went from one house to the next without question. Wow. So it was, it, it, was just, it was just a wonderful childhood. And you had a really great relationship with your mother. Absolutely. Absolutely. She was always there for me. It didn't matter what time she came home from work in the evening. She made time for me. How would you describe your mother? A very forward, smart thinking woman. That's how I would describe her. An extremely lovable. Do you see your That's mother in you? Sorry? Do you see your mother in you? I do. My, my brother, who's 12 years younger than me, he made a comment years ago. He said, you're, you're just like mom. Hmm. And sometimes now I'm getting older, I look in the mirror and it's like her looking at me. Wow. And I do, I do smile to myself when I see that reflection because she, she's never far from my thoughts. How did she help shape your life in those early years? Were there formative lessons or moments that, that really stick with you even now? I always remember from my very early years, as far back as I can remember, one of the things she always impressed on me as a youngster, and she was very, very strict about this, was education. Mm. She always said, education, education, education. She said, you may go through life, there may be many obstacles in your way. She said, but as long as you are educated, you will overcome those obstacles. And I always remember those words. And I vowed that I would not let her down in, 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 that, in that area. Things that, even when I was what, what, 15, 16 years old in school, if I had my homework to do and I had to revise something, we would sit at the table and I would say, Mom, this is what I have to remember. This is what I have to revise. And she would take the book and she would question me to make sure I got it right. When I was a kid at primary school, about five, six years old, I had to read certain passages from books every morning before I left the house, before I went to school. And two of those books I still have in my possession. Mm. What are they? And those are two of my most treasured items. What are they? Eh? Hold on, I'll show you. Oh, please. Okay, please. <laughs> Can you see that? If you lift it up a little bit. So the Royal, the Royal Readers? Yes. And what is that? 
it's a book that I use at primary school. <laughs> I was somewhere between, I was about five or six years old when I started using this book. And every morning before I left the house, I had to read passages from this book. Oh. And what, she was what, absolutely insistent. What year is that book from? I think this book was printed in the 50s. Wow. This is one book. This is another book. Uh, best, best stories from the best book. Say more about this that. Is the, this is the first book I have ever owned in my entire life. As in you bought with your own money? No. It was given to me right. by a cousin. And what are some of the best stories from the best book? Oh, gosh, I learned the alphabet from this book. Right, right. A is for apple. B is for bird. C is for cat. D is for dog. <laughs> Those are the things I learned from this book. And these are two of my most treasured items. Your go. <laughs> I'm just thinking because I don't I don't want to jump but the the question that popped into my head next was did you ha did you begin to have an understanding of your sexuality while you were in Barbados in those first 16 years? Yes, I did. Okay. Yes, I did. When was that realization? I must have been about 12 or somewhere between 11 and 13, I would say. Now, I noticed that boys were more attractive <laughs> than, than girls. <laughs> yes. So that's, that's where my curiosity, curiosity started. And I had my first boyfriend when I was 15 years, I think somewhere between 14 and 15. Wow. I think, I think closer to 15. Yes, we were both the same age. I remember actually that um, when I was in my first two years of high, yeah, the first year of high school, mm -hmm. um, I had a boyfriend and I wasn't out at yes. the time, of course, because this was Texas in 2002 or something. Yes. And we had this, what felt like a very illicit affair at school. And we used uh -huh. to slip notes in each other's locker between class and make out in the bathroom. <laughs> kind of a, a foreshadowing of years to come. <laughs> but yeah, it was, um, I think back, I mean, it ended horribly, of course, as these things mm -hmm. tend to do. But I look back on it and I, I still smile from, from ear to ear, I think. What a wonderful, that that kind of wild energy of your early teens where you're doing something mm -hmm. that feels forbidden, but also so right. Um, mm -hmm. that really lingers, I think. Yes. I, I remember that quite clearly, those, those early years. We were about, about the same age. And funnily enough, you, you know, I do ask about him occasionally. He no longer lives in Barbados. I think he lives, I think, somewhere in the U.S. I'm not sure. You know, but um, he, he was my first love. And what was the environment around you at the time? 
as you were coming to this recognition of your of your desire of your emotions of your feelings did was there what was the culture like around you at the time did you understand it to be wrong inherently did you not question it at all did you feel you had to hide did you feel you could be yourself what what was what was the environment around you like it was something i heard the older people talk about but as far as I was concerned, it was something that I enjoyed. Mm. <laughs> and, and nothing was going to stop me from enjoying it. Mm. I mean, it was all rather illicit, you know, after dark and things like that. Yeah. We got up to whatever what we wanted to do. And I would say none of our friends knew about it. But it was only, I would say, possibly about 20 years ago, I mentioned this to my closest friend, the one I said I knew from school days as far back as I can remember. And I mentioned it to him. And he said, I always knew. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, how did you know? He said, because there are things that I was aware of, you know, and I saw certain signs that I knew, I knew something was going on. Yes. Oh, that's so sweet. Yes. <laughs> that's so sweet. And, and, this is a, this is, and this friend of mine is a straight friend. Right, 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 right. Yes, he, he's a straight friend. But to me, he's like a brother. Yes. We can tell each other our most innermost thoughts. It's, it's always... <sighs> It's always so surprising to me at just who in our life has always seen us. Mm -hmm. When I came out, my grandfather, you know, Baptist preacher, um, said, oh, I've always known, you know? And he was one of the people I was scared to tell the most, but he ended up being the one who had seen me for a long yes. time. Yes. And one of the things that I remember my mother also said to me, she said, if you are going to be a liar, make sure you are a very good liar. She said, because sooner or later, you will be caught out. <laughs> and have you taken that to heart? <laughs> I've, I've taken it to heart, yes. Mm. I've, ta I've taken it to heart, yes. So you're in this kind of wonderful period of your life. You're in Barbados, mm -hmm. you're running around with your cousins, you're in the throes of an affair, and you turn 16, what precipitates this move to London? Well, my father lived in Birmingham. I'm sorry, Birmingham, so yes. I joined him in Birmingham. Right. And I stayed with him for one year. But was, was there a reason why you moved to Birmingham? I'm a, I never lived in London. I came from Barbados to Birmingham. Yes, sir. That's what I mean. So yes. is there a reason you left Barbados for Birmingham? It was for further education. Okay. Yes. Um, I mean, I could have continued my, my high school education in Barbados, but I wanted to be a bit adventurous. And my mother reluctantly allowed me to come to England because she was never one to push her opinions on you. She would say, 
this is what I think. Now you decide what you want to do. I can only tell you what I think, but you have to decide what you want to do. So I came to, I came to England, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, <laughs> at the age of 16. I brought some of my textbooks along with me, some of my Latin books, some of my French books, which I still have in my possession, wow. my textbooks, which I still have in my possession. I stayed with my father for one year, but that didn't work out. Nothing to do with my sexuality. It's just that I think I was a little bit too smart for him. Mm. And the reason why I'm saying this is simply, he was in the Merchant Navy and he spent many, many years away from Barbados. I would see him when he came on leave but to me, he was like, like a stranger. So I guess when I came to Birmingham, his visions of me was of someone from years back. Ah, uh, yes. Mm. I think he was sort of thinking about me the way he's, when he was in his youth in Barbados. But I was one who was used to be used to making decisions and one who could argue my points and could be very forceful at times. All down to my mother. Mm, your mother's I son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that caused friction between us. Right. And at the age of 17, I decided that I was going to leave his house. And that's what I did. So at 17, you made a decision. You said, you know what, I'm done and I'm leaving. And you just left. And I just left. My God. I, I was working. I had enrolled myself at evenings for evening classes because I thought it was very, very important that I continued my education. I thought I had brought all this education from Barbados with me and there was no way I was going to let that fall by the wayside. What was, I mean, you're 17, I guess this is 1964 now. Talk yes. to me about what Birmingham was like in 1964, what your experience was like in Birmingham. Birmingham was, what would I say? When I first arrived in, in Birmingham, I thought, my God, this place is dark. <laughs> because, you know, it was just recovering from the war, I guess. A lot of the, biz a lot of the buildings were dark and the people wore drab-looking clothes. And to me, people lived on the same street and they didn't know each other's names. Mm. And I thought, this is most peculiar. People don't... <laughs> People don't talk to anyone. How can you live on the street? <laughs> and you don't, you don't know, you don't know the names of people living on that street. 
So, but I, I quickly made friends. But I had no family in this country at that age. And I mean, you're coming from like, you're coming from this immense support system. Sorry, this isn't wine, it's juice. Even if it was wine, that would be fine, mm -hmm. sir. <laughs> you're coming from this immense support system. Mm -hmm. You know, the kind of um, careful, considered, loving mother. You, and then you're, you're let loose in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow. Did, did, you must have felt lonely at times, no? No, I didn't, funnily enough. Why do you think that I is? Didn't, I, didn't, I didn't feel lonely in any shape or form. The things I looked at was, <clears throat> I thought, right. I looked at the educational opportunities at the time. My focus mainly was continuing my education. That was my main focus. Mm. I thought, well, if I can work and I have enough money to pay rent, to buy food, to clothe myself. Those are the things that mattered. Mm. And my education. Those are, the, those are my four core values. And I stuck to those values when my friends were going to discos. Because in those days, discos started at six o'clock in the evening. Really? Can you imagine saying to a 16-year-old today, <laughs> you are going to a disco starting at six o'clock <laughs> and finishing not. at nine or ten o'clock. <laughs> no. They will say, get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and so what about your sexuality? Like, you know, you're a 17-year-old gay man. Are you, do you self-identify as gay? Yes. So you're a 17-year-old gay man, independent, fancy free. Mm -hmm. How are you exploring your sexuality in this time? That went on the back burner. Oh, really? Okay. I wanted no distractions. I mean, that, this is, you know, uh, friend, friend, Franciscan. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> For a 17 year old. Wow. Yeah. When my friends were enjoying themselves. Sorry, excuse that. <laughs> I had, I, I had my head in my books. Mm because I had made, I had written to my mother and I'd made her a promise that I would continue my education and I would not let her down. And I was determined to keep that promise. Mm. And I kept it. What did you go on to do with your education then? Then I started nurse training in Birmingham. What drew you to nursing? I trained as a nurse in Birmingham. Yes, but what drew you to it? Is, was there a reason why you wanted to be a nurse? I was very good at biology at school. Okay. And I was always interested in medical things. And I thought, well, nursing seems interesting. So I did. I trained as a nurse. I went from Birmingham to Leicester. I spent about about 14 months i think in leicester and then from leicester to london so i came down to london in 70 71 and i have been in london ever since but when i came down to london 
my sexuality still didn't play a really important part in my life. In that you didn't think about it or that you didn't pursue relationships or you weren't sexually active or? I wasn't sexually active. It was there, but I was busy concentrating on what I wanted to do. Mm. I said to myself, this can wait. This is not important at the moment. These are other things that I need to sort out first. I put everything in little boxes. I said, I have to do this. When that is finished, I can do this. Then I can do that. Then I will get to this. <laughs> there's like, and, that's what, and that's what I did. I mean, there's a great pragmatism to your outlook. Mm. Yes. And it, it may not work for everyone. Sure. But it, it worked for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wrote this down. Practical, pragmatic. Mm. And where where is the passion? Is it education? Yes. Mm. And it's one of the things, because of what's happening now with coronavirus, a bit of advice that I would like to pass on to young gay black men who are now coming into the world, ensure that you have a very, very good education. Educate yourself. That's extremely important. And what type of education do you mean? Because I... I would say not the usual things you're going to learn in the classroom, like maths and English and geography and history, those things. But you need a much wider spectrum. Mm gain interests in other things well and so what were your interests outside of working in education then right because if this hobby slash cultural education is also important mm. when did that come in when did you start to now, gather as it were <laughs> let's go back to birmingham okay When I was 18, 19 years old in Birmingham, my friends were into pop and reggae and blue beat and ska and all those things, which was a rage at the time. But it did absolutely nothing for me. Nothing whatsoever. And even now, people still find it quite shocking. And you, this may come as a surprise to you. Would you have any idea what my real passion is? I know. Would you make any guesses? <laughs> I'd make a guess painting. No. Bowling. <laughs> I don't no. know if that's really something very obvious. <laughs> Go on then. My passion is opera. Opera. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. I bought my first operatic record when I was either 19 or 20. What was it about the opera that stirred something within you? It was the human voice. I took that, I took the human voice singing opera and I made a comparison between that and all the pop music I was hearing at the time. 
Right. And I made a comparison of the two voices. I listened to the vocal techniques on both. And I think, wow, these singers, they can sing. Mm. These guys, they're making a noise. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine what you think of music at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Some of it's good. Some of it's good. But to me, a lot of it is total rubbish. Mm. And not only that, but I love going. I love going to concerts. I love going to the theater. I love gardening. Right. So you weren't you weren't just working and just learning. You were focused on cultural pursuits and being interested in and staying curious and things and pursuing those. Yes. Right. 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 Yes. So those, those sort of came in, and they all. And I found out at an early age. Your cultural interests can help you get a long way. Say more about that. Sorry? Say more about that. I found when I was networking, I could form a relationship with a lot of my senior colleagues and I could, I could pull surprises on people. I could hear people talking about things. It may be the theater, it may be a piece of classical music, it could be maybe about an opera or something, and they'll be sitting there talking, and I would sit and think, you've got it wrong, it doesn't go that way. <laughs> and you know, sometimes you may be sitting there and people are talking, and they suddenly turn and look at you, mm-hmm. as though they're saying, well, what do you think? And I was able to say, well, I can give you my opinion if you want to hear. <laughs> Again, mother's son. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't that composer. He didn't compose that. It was composed by that person. Oh. And it was composed in that year. And these are the singers who I think have made the best recordings of this particular work. Oh. And it caught so many people by surprise. And then people, I think, start to see me in a slightly different way. Mm. And from then I begin to learn that if you gain knowledge, a wide spectrum of knowledge, it can help you go a very, very long way. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And so you weren't obviously encumbered by any of the, I mean, you're, you're at it, you're, you're coming of age mm-hmm. at, at a time and really uh, the racial tensions in the UK were insane. I mean, people are writing about them now still, right? And the writing. Are, they're still writing about the racial tensions of that time 
even now, right? The 60s, 70s, mm -hmm. is the a political blackness, the Race Relations Act of 1968, the Institute mm -hmm. of Race Relations begins in the 70s. I mean, it's an incredibly fraught time, dangerous time, mm -hmm. the, the race riots in Tuxith in the 80s. So you don't seem, to, you don't sound to have been encumbered by any sort of um, expectations set upon you perhaps by wider society. No, because I felt, and I still do feel that way, is when it comes to issues of race and discussions about race, there are certain sections of society that expect a black man to react in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And when you do not fulfill that expectation, you're left alone. If you do not fulfill that expectation, you are left alone. Or you can be left alone. Right. Yes, you can be left alone. Mm. Because, you know, as a black man, and I as a black man and other black men that you have met, people, when they say it's the first thing they see is a black man. Mm. And people sometimes have preconceived ideas about us. Mm -hmm. When those preconceived ideas don't come to fruition, they don't know how to handle it. Yeah, sometimes it's with violence though, right? Yeah? Sometimes it's with violence though, right? Yes. Mm. And sometimes it's being left alone. Yes. But when you meet someone who wants to be violent, there's no point arguing with them. You just walk away. Mm. There's no point getting yourself injured for no reason. I've learned from a very young age that shouting gets you nowhere. If you want to discuss something with someone, you do it in a very calm way. If that person want to shout, you let them shout, but you don't shout. Always remember another thing I was told by my mother is, you are just as good as anyone, you're equal to anyone. And I have always maintained that. So if you meet someone who wants to be a little bit silly, you don't fall for it. And sometimes I think silence is golden. Mm. We speak about this a lot. I mean, I speak mm? about it all the time. <laughs> about, silence is golden. Well, about the nuances of silence, right? Yes. Gino Diaz, um, said that he's most fluent in silence. 
mm-hmm. that black people are most fluent in silence. Audre Lorde says in the 80s, writes, your silence will not protect you. Mm-hmm. We're all meant to die anyway. You might as well speak up in the process. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I'm curious, and I do, but I don't want to force it, of course. Okay. You know, we, just this week, we've seen, mm-hmm. uh, just this week alone, I mean, we're seeing mm-hmm. some really heinous acts of violence against Black people here in the UK yes. and around the world, particularly in the mm-hmm. US. Mm-hmm. And we are being confronted with a material reality Mm-hmm. over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. And so even for the Black people who are left alone, you mm-hmm. know, um, surprise mm-hmm. people, um, mm-hmm. there's still a confrontation with that death. And so mm-hmm. silence in this moment then becomes very complicated. Not only because sometimes silence is me saying, I can't... <laughs> when I say silence is golden, I don't mean that you zip your mouth all the time, permanently. Mm. But you have to know when to be silent mm, mm, and mm. when to speak up. There's a difference in the two here. Sure. When to be silent and when to speak up. What's been happening in the, in the US, I've been watching YouTube and I watch, I watch a lot of Roland Martin. Mm-hmm. These things need to be spoken about and made known. Mm. In these instances, you cannot be silent. But if someone comes along and says, oh, I don't like you because you're black. Hmm. Are you going to argue with him? Of course not. (laughs) Well, I might, but yeah. (laughs) I'd probably turn and turn, I might look at him and think, this guy has a problem. Hmm. He has a problem. I have lived with this since the day I came into this world. This doesn't bother me. It's beautiful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Some days you struggle to be like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, but with that, I, I would, I would complete, I would completely ignore him or her. Mm. It's about finding because your then, voice. Sorry. It's about finding your voice, right? Yes. Mm. Because if you create an argument, you're giving them the, f- the fuel mm. that they're looking for. If, if you completely ignore them, they've got nothing to come back at you with. Mm. Yeah, it's one of the lessons my family taught me, just ignore them. Bullies hate nothing worse than being ignored. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I would love to spend some time talking about your late partner, Michael. Yes. How did you meet Michael? Ha <laughs> How did I meet Michael? In 1974, I went to a club on Bond Street. It was behind Cecil G's shop. It was called Napoleons. <laughs> Those from the old gay community would probably remember this club. I went with a friend. 
and I looked across the dance floor, I saw a guy with red hair. He was standing with two black guys and I think two white guys. I can't remember the complete mixture. I had never seen him before in my entire life. But I just looked across the dance floor. I saw him. I immediately fell in love with him. For two years, I had a vision of this person. Sometimes if I was in the street, I would say, oh, am I going to bump into him? Am I going to see him? Let's move on now, two years. So 1976. 1976. February, <laughs> 1976. I was working at a London hospital. We had a very busy afternoon. I sat down. And this is so weird. It was as though someone had said to me, you have got to go to the catacombs tonight. Have you heard of the catacombs? No. I'll ask you a personal question. How old are you? 34. Oh, well before your time. Yes, 1986. <laughs> well, there was a very famous club in Earl's Court called um, the Colhern. You must have heard it in conversation. Mm -hmm. Never heard of the, Col the Colhern. Mm -mm. I think every gay man of 50 right. must have heard of, know the Colhern. It was round the back of the Colhern, down the steps. You could not buy alcohol just soft drinks and milk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the entrance, I think, was something like, it was, it was less than 50p, I think. I persuaded a friend to accompany me to that club that evening. Half an hour after I got to the club, I looked around. I saw a guy with red hair and a ginger beard. He was looking in my direction, but his eyes weren't focused on me. I looked over my shoulder and I immediately thought, oh, he's looking at the guy behind me. They both disappeared. A few minutes later, I felt someone tap me on my shoulder and I looked around. It was the guy with the red hair and the ginger beard. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, can we have a dance? And I said, yeah, sure. We had a couple of dances. We sat down and we started talking. And I suddenly thought, this can't be happening. This is crazy. This is the guy from two years ago. <laughs> he has no grown a beard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was in February of 1976. And you were together for? Almost 36 years. Wow. Almost 36 years. And he died of cancer. Hmm. But strangely enough, I still live in the same house that we bought. And 
even though I live here alone, there's someone that's in my life now, mm -hmm. but he has his own place. But even now I'm in the house alone, I never feel alone in the house. I always feel there is someone else in the house. Wow. Yes. And we had 36 wonderful years. We traveled, we went around the world twice. You know, we went to some unusual places. We did nine or ten gay cruises. Hmm. You know, um, he was very instrumental when I decided to change careers. We sat down, we discussed what I wanted to do. <clears throat> and he was, he was very instrumental. In that he, he supported me in every shape and form. Yes. He was a guy in a million. Yes. How long ago did he pass? 2011. Okay. Yes. So this November will be eight years, will be nine years. Will be nine years. Yes. I want to ask you about grieving, but I don't want to be no, no, <laughs> macabre. Please, please, please do. Because I think, you know, Larry, Larry Kramer died today. Mm -hmm. And um, I was awash with emotion. Mm -hmm. um, he was so foundational to the HIV AIDS movement. And his impact and his legacy is remarkable, right? Mm -hmm. And, but I recognized this feeling as one of grief mm -hmm. and connected to the sense of loss I sometimes feel mm -hmm. not having more closeness, more contact with our, with our elders, mm -hmm. right? With people Mm -hmm. whose lives in big ways and in small ways mm -hmm. and in everyday ways and in yeah. mundane ways and mm -hmm. in dazzling ways mm -hmm. have made our lives so possible now. Mm -hmm. And I, that, and I don't know how we grieve as a community. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about grief? Grief, it affects people in many different ways. Mm. When Michael didn't die suddenly, it was something that happened over a period of time. So we both knew what the end results would have been. So we were prepared for it. And having worked as a nurse previously, I knew what death was all about. So I was able to handle that. I didn't go into a long grieving process. One of the things he said to me, when I'm not here, do not do a Queen Victoria. <laughs> yes. He said, just get on with life. 
That's what he said. Just get on with life when I'm no longer here. He died and I have a letter from an organization offering me counseling. But I didn't want it because I felt it would just have messed up my head. Because sometimes I frank, quite frankly believe that counseling can mess your head up sometimes. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> quite frankly, it can mess your head up. <laughs> yeah, leave everything where it is. <laughs> so I said no. I was fortunate because we had a good circle of friends. So they were very supportive. But the good thing was about them, they never, they never dwelt on his death. Right. When they talk about him, they talk about all the laughs and all the funny things that we did. The parties we went to, the restaurants we went to, you know, um, the trip somewhere or something like that. So we met, we, we all dwelt on the good times. It was, there was no sadness there. And to me, to me that was important. Mm, a celebration of his life, an honor. Yes. An honoring of his life. Yes. I mean, there are pictures, there are pictures of him around the house. Yeah, so when I look around, I see him. Mm -hmm. Do you ever speak to him? Oh, I do. All the time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. Do you sometimes find that you have put something somewhere? You know you've put it there, and when you go back to look for it, it isn't there. You think, where the hell has it gone to? I'm convinced I've put it there. And then, I mean, that happens to me, then I've put it somewhere completely different. Mm. And I think, oh, well, no, I'm sure I put it up there, but it's not there. And I say, oh, Michael, for God's sake, stop moving things around. <laughs> <laughs> now, those little things that you sort of make jokes about. Mm -hmm. Now, when I'm working in the garden, there's a pigeon that comes every day as long as I'm in the garden and it sits. And it watches me continuously. And I, I say to him, oh, are you Michael or something? Why are you watching me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, those, little, those mm. little games you have, you know, little laughs and things you have, mm. you know, like that. You know, but it was a very, very happy relationship. A very, and I trusted him implicitly. Mm. I've heard of horror stories that be between couples, but with us, that never, ever existed. If he had brought a piece of paper to me and says, oh, Jeff, can you sign this? I never queried what it was. Right. I just signed it. Because that was my level of trust in him. Because he was not a devious person. Hmm. You know. So... I can't believe we're almost out of time. I could speak to you for, uh, we're going to have to do another episode because there's so much more to talk about. Oh, yes. But 
And I want to see you as well. I would love to give you a hug. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> um, you're retired now. Yes. I retired at the end of 2010. Okay. Oh, so you've been retired for, oh, 10 years. Yes. Oh, of course you have. Sorry, of course you've been. <laughs> I have obviously but no concept when of When I retired, I was no longer working as a nurse. Mm. I gave up nursing and I went back and I trained as a cardiac physiologist. Right, right. And I did that for 30-something 30, 30 years. And so you retired from cardiac physiology in 2010. Yes. How are you enjoying your retirement? Oh, absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Do you know, Josh, I have never once woken up and said, I have missed work. Mm. Never once. And that is the honest truth. Before I retired, I started working three days a week, Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays. And that's also Michael was alive during that time. I retired at the end of 2010 and Michael died at the end of 2011. So we had great plans for that year. We had booked a couple of cruises, you know, all those things, but it never happened. He started to become ill in February of 2011 and everything just went downhill from there. Mm. Yeah, he had been ill before. Mm. He had a brush with cancer before, but he'd gotten over that, you know, and, but then it presented itself again and it was just that, mm. you know, but we were quite happy because we, we had the support of both families. And to me, that was really, really important, the support, family support. Even now, I'm still very close to his brother and sister. You know, mm. um, they check on me to make sure I'm okay. You know, and those things. His, his, his nieces and nephews, I knew them before they were born. Yeah. You know, he met my brother's children and my sister's children when they were when they were babies. So they they, they knew him. Mm. You know, so he he wasn't a stranger, and that to my family, and I wasn't a stranger to his family. There's a question I need to ask you. Yeah. Where are you from in the U.S.? Atlanta. Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Deep mm -hmm. South. My family's originally from Texas, via Tennessee. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, I came of age, well, high school in Atlanta and then moved back to the UK in 2015. Uh, not 2015, you... sorry. 2005. Were you born here? Yeah, I was born here. Yeah, my, mom, uh, my mom's British. In Bedford. In Bedford? Yeah. <laughs> One of my sister's sons, he, he's at Morehouse. Oh, great. And he's just starting at Morehouse. Oh, good for him. This is, this is his first semester at, at Morehouse. Oh. Yes. But, you know, I'm quite willing to have a chat with you anytime. I would really you know, like that. No, no, no problems if you want to have a chat. So what are you going to do with all this information I've just given you? Well, I'm going to put it, I'm going to make an episode out of it. 
but I'm gonna mm -hmm. suggest it's the first of many. There's so much here. I'm really, really touched. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I feel a little emotional actually. I just, it's beautiful to, um, that was such a wimp. <laughs> um, to be able to capture your voice in your story mm -hmm. and to see your joy as a beautiful uh -huh. thing yeah. um, to share in. And mm -hmm. I think it's so important that we bear witness to the lives of others. And so I feel really honored to bear witness to yours. Yes. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. It has for me as well, honestly. And um, yes. I hope you don't mind if I call you and I check on you too. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime I'm here, Josh, <laughs> because of coronavirus, I'm not going anywhere. Jeffrey Pickering is enjoying his retirement and volunteering time with Opening Doors London, the leading charity offering support to our LGBTQ elders. They run a number of essential interventions to combat loneliness and isolation, and the charity needs our help to keep their vital services running. Please join me in letting our elders know that we care by setting up a regular donation to Opening Doors London. Please donate whatever you can. Go to openingdoorslondon.org.uk to donate. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.